Well, since it's already mentioned, from a distance we are instruments marching in a common band, playing songs of hope. You know where we're going yet? Playing songs of peace. They are the songs of every man. <laughs> there we go. God is watching us, Bette Midler sang. God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance. Just so I'm doing it correctly, that's Bette Midler, album, Some People's Lives, 1990. Good years. It's pretty easy to make the assumption, I think, that God is watching over us when things are going well, right? So this whole concept of God is watching us is pretty easy for us to identify with, especially when it is easy for us in life. But I think it's good for us to pause and think about the sayings we use, the things that we, we say regularly. Let's just pause on that assumption for a moment, that because things are easy for us at the moment, we might say, well, listen, God is watching over us, right? Wow, God was really watching over me. We need to see if we can tease out some of the underlying thought patterns that are going on when we say things like that. So a couple of examples of times where I've heard it said. In fact, I think probably times when I may have said it myself. Um, think about a time when you may have had a very near miss in traffic, for example. Or maybe there was some sudden circumstantial change that occurred that we benefited from. So what do we say there? So often, isn't it? Wow, God was really watching over me. That guy, if I'd just changed lanes and that guy went through, God was really watching over me. And what we're often doing when we say that is we're, we're actually taking two separate things, namely our, um, let's say, our beneficial outcome, and the belief that God is watching over us and we link them together. So in our thinking, we begin to associate God watching over me or God watching over us with good outcomes. But what about when life doesn't seem to have any good outcomes? You see, it's very easy for us when life is easy to say, God is watching over us. When I'm the beneficiary of my circumstances, I can easily say, wow, God is really watching over us. But what about when it's hard? I think the problem with this way of thinking soon rears its ugly head when instead of the near miss in traffic, we have a serious accident or the flight that was changed at the last minute goes terribly wrong, 
and we miss an important engagement. What do we do with the notion of God watching over us when our plans seem to slip through our fingers? Or maybe the hopes that you had are torn apart, the dreams that you have are blown away by the wind. Is God still watching then? Maybe it's the consequences of our own sin that are wreaking havoc in our life. Or maybe it's just an innocent mistake that has some far-reaching consequences, serious consequences in our life. Or maybe there are just events that are unfolding in your life right now that have completely taken you by surprise. You don't know where they came from. I could never have seen this happening. When these sorts of things happen, it becomes very easy to draw a whole new set of assumptions about where God is watching or where his favour lies, especially his favour toward us, right? So this uh, God who is watching over us now is the God of Bette Midler's song. He's watching, but from a distance. That type of God is passive in our suffering. Maybe he stands very distant, very aloof from your pain. So I'm going to ask you a question to sort of try and hone in on this a little bit. And I want you to think about it from your own personal experiences. Does God's closeness, that sense of his intimacy in watching over you, does God's closeness spin on the wheel of your own (coughs) circumstances? Is the most reliable indicator of God's presence in your life or maybe the reality of his interest in you and his concern for you, does it depend on how you feel about your circumstances? In other words, if your circumstances are good and beneficial, do you assume that God must be watching over you? And if they're bad, do you think that God is distant and removed? Well, that's what I want to consider this morning. How should we think about, how should we respond to a God who watches over us? All right, so I want to go to a more reliable guide than your own circumstances or my own circumstances. Look, it's undoubtedly true. Our practices, um, our circumstances, the things that are actually happening in our life, they are powerful. They are a powerful influence on our thinking. We can't deny that. What's going on around us shapes the way that I think. And I'm certain that most people here today, or listening online, most people here today would probably 
agree with me that a more reliable guide on this topic is what God says about the subject matter, what the Bible itself tells us. And if that's true, what passage should we turn to? It's a big book. It takes a long time to read through it, even if you follow religiously our guides right through the whole Bible. It's, it's a slog to get there, right? It's hard. What passage should we turn to? Well, I've chosen one this morning. Um, There's there's a lot that we could go to, but I've chosen one. Might be a surprise to you. And initially, it might even be a bit confusing. But I think it perfectly fits our dilemma this morning. How should we think about God and how he watches over us independently of our circumstances? I think it fits our dilemma well because it perfectly fitted the dilemma of the original hearers. And my prayer is that you'll soon see why. So I'm going to give you a moment to find it because maybe you're not familiar the location of this book, but it is the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Now, I've deliberately not put it on the screen this morning. I want you to hear the words of Ezekiel the same way as the original hearers would have heard it. Now, please, if you have your Bible in front of you, open it up, follow on, making sure I'm not telling you porky pies or anything, but this is is the reading from Ezekiel. I'm going to read the entire first chapter of the book of Ezekiel. If you're having trouble finding it, your Bible will have a contents page near the beginning somewhere. Look it up, that's all right. No shame in that. Page 500. Thank you, Tim. If you have exactly the same Bible as Tim, published at the same time, it'll be page 500 in the NLT. Oh, ESV. Very good. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. I would invite you to listen. In the 13th year... In the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, while I was among the exiles in the Shabar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile, the word of the Lord came directly to the priest Ezekiel, son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Shabar Canal. The Lord's hand was on him there. Verse 4. I looked, and there was a whirlwind coming from the north, a huge cloud with fire flashing back and forth and brilliant light all around it. In the center of the fire, there was a gleam like amber. The likeness of four living creatures came from it, and this was their appearance. They looked something like a human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the hooves of a calf sparkling like the gleam of polished bronze. 
They had human hands under their wings on their four sides. All four of them had faces and wings. Their wings were touching. The creatures did not turn as they moved. Each one went straight ahead. Their faces looked something like the face of a human. And each of the four had the face of a lion on the right, the face of an ox on the left, and the face of an eagle. That is what their faces were like. Their wings were spread upward. Each had two wings touching that one that of another and two wings covering its body. Each creature went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went without turning as they moved. The likeness of the living creatures was like the appearance of blazing coals of fire or like torches. Fire was moving back and forth between the living creatures. It was bright with lightning coming out of it. The creatures were darting back and forth like flashes of lightning. When I looked at the living creatures, there was one wheel on the ground beside each of the four-faced creatures. The appearance of the wheels and their craftsmanship was like the gleam of beryl. And all four had the same likeness. Their appearance and craftsmanship was like a wheel within a wheel. When they moved, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they moved. Their rims were tall and awe-inspiring. Each of their four eyes were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures moved, the wheels moved beside them. And when the creatures rose from the earth, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, the creatures went in the direction the spirit was moving. The wheels rose alongside them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, the wheels moved. When the creatures stopped, the wheels stopped. When the creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures, the likeness of an expanse was spread out. It gleamed with awe-inspiring crystal. And under the expanse, their wings extended one toward another. They each also had two wings covering their bodies. When they moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of a huge torrent, like the voice of the Almighty, and a sound of tumult, like the noise of an army. When they stopped, they lowered their wings. A voice came from above the expanse over their heads. When they stopped, they lowered their wings. Something like a throne with the appearance of lapis lazuli was above the expanse over their heads. On the throne, high above, was someone who looked like a human. From what seemed to be his waist up, I saw a gleam like amber. From what looked like fire enclosing it all around. 
From what seemed to be his waist down, I also saw what looked like fire. There was a brilliant light all around him. The appearance of the brilliant light all around was like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard a voice speaking. The rest of Ezekiel is really about what that voice says, what Ezekiel did and how God continued to talk to him. I'm going to ask you to do something quite difficult now. This book, this letter, Ezekiel's prophecy, um, Ezekiel's vision, it was given to a fallen people in a fallen land. And this is difficult for us to do here in Raymond Terrace in 2022 because I'm going to ask you to get out of your own head for a few minutes and try to launch yourself across time and space and imagine that you have ochre-coloured skin, dark hair and eyes and are a descendant of Abraham. (coughs) The vision of Ezekiel that you just heard was the message you would have been told by Ezekiel himself had you been an Israelite held in captivity by the world's superpower, the king of Babylon. The year was 597 before Christ. And you are very far from home. You are an exile. You are an exile. You are a captive in exile, rooted up from the southern nation of Judah. You were a once proud inhabitant of Jerusalem, but not anymore. All of that's gone now. When Ezekiel told the people this vision, Five years had gone past since your king, the king in Jerusalem, had rebelled against the Babylonian rule over Israel and over Judah and over Jerusalem. And the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, had marched in with his armies and swept you all away to Assyria. Your homeland now lies in ruins over a thousand kilometers away to the west. And your life is held in the palm of a foreign ruler. You are an exile. What had gone wrong? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? We look outside, we've had such beautiful rain for the last few years. (laughs) Everything's green. Everything's lush at the moment. It's hard to remember what it looked like when it was brown and dry and barren. It 
you, if you had been one of the initial hearers of this vision, were living in a barren and dry land away from your home. What had gone wrong? It had only been 400 years earlier, which in the scheme of human history is not a long period of time at all, but only 400 years earlier, the nation of Israel had been the seat of power in the known world. David, the great King David, had established the nation in the midst of war and victory, right? Solomon, David's son, had confirmed it with political connections to the rest of the world and unrivaled wealth. Surely, surely God was watching over his people, right? Surely. Look, look at what they had. They had everything. All the nations of the world sent their envoys to see Solomon, to see David, to beg their favour, to be in their good books. Surely God was watching over his people. Surely God was blessing them, right? But from where you sit now in exile, where's God now? Where's God now? From the height of heights, you and your people had fallen. And now you are left destitute and forgotten. You are rotting in a pagan land under a pagan king. You're in exile. Is that difficult for you to imagine? And then comes this vision. I put a picture up there of it. I think it's a pretty poor attempt. The vision comes as you are in exile in another land. The problem with reading visions in the Bible is that they are filled with imagery and symbolism that were plainly obvious to the original hearers, but more difficult for us to understand, especially those of us from different cultures and different times. A bit like, um, I'm not sure if you've ever travelled overseas, a bit like travelling overseas, and you go to another country and you try to understand their road signs. Plainly obvious to everyone who lives there, what that funny upside-down triangle with that weird mark on it means. Everyone looks at that who lives in that country and just goes, that's very obvious. But if you are a visitor to that country, you just go, I, I don't know. I thought it was one... I, I'm, a, I'm allowed to drive on this street. I'm, I'm a tourist. Don't worry about it. That's what symbols and images do. They're plainly obvious to those who know them. And the visions of the Bible are similar. This particular vision has captured the imagination of scholars and Christians alike. It's filled with strange images, hints of machinery, which intrigue us, that some people think are pointing forward to a modern age. And if I were to list all the theories that I've ever read of or heard, we'd be here all day about what this vision means. 
And I'm not a scholar, but I do believe that God doesn't want to mask his truth. God is not some sort of divine hide-and-seek master. I'm going to hide my truth. Hopefully you can find it. God doesn't want to hide it away from us. So let's see if we can grasp hold of a few things that may have given the exiled Israelites comfort and maybe it will even give us comfort today. I'm going to ask God's help. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, this is your word. You gave this vision to Ezekiel. You had something in mind when you showed Ezekiel the vision of yourself to tell his people. And and now we're looking at it from thousands of years later from another place. But we want to see the significance of what you showed Ezekiel that day. We believe that you are the same God, the same spirit that drove these wheels within wheels and these creatures to move backwards and forwards. The same spirit that made them go forward or backwards or rise up is the same spirit that dwells within us today. So Holy Spirit, will you give us eyes to see our God? Amen. Let's just think for a moment about this Babylonian context for a little bit, because I think it helps us to sort of try and frame the vision in and see where it fits for us. Ezekiel had his vision in Babylon as one of the captive exiles, all right? He says that in Ezekiel chapter 1, as we read it, opening verses, very specific about what day it was. Matters a lot. But it starts to see that Ezekiel himself was in the same context as all the other exiles. Ezekiel was um, a priest. Uh, Ezekiel was a prophet. But here he was, removed with all the other exiles, away from Jerusalem, away from his homeland, ripped out of his context, overcome by Babylon and placed in a foreign land and being exiled there with no idea about how long they would ever be there for. Ezekiel had this vision as a captive exile. But it was in Babylon. That's where the the vision came. If we compare his vision and, and the imagery that he saw to... Babylonian, and there's a big word called iconography, which basically means the study of how a culture communicates through symbols. If, if we're around for another thousand years, the historians in a thousand years' time are going to look back at our culture and just go, what a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> All these memes and you know, emojis and everything that we communicate with. How they study what a symbol communicates is called iconography. All right? So um, choosing the right The right gif or the right emoji in your text is important because it communicates something to your um, friend. Well, if we study the Babylonian way of communicating through symbols, it reveals that Ezekiel saw a divine throne chariot. A throne chariot. Did you see that in his vision? Above the expanse, this great throne. There are these wheels within wheels and all sorts of things that are going on. But there's this image of this throne chariot in the heavens, over the expanse, it said. Now, that's not unique to Ezekiel. It's not even unique to Israelites. That is a common image amongst many ancient uh, cultures. 
It's widely described in the ancient biblical world. Just as human kings had chariots, so did deities. And a deity, doesn't matter what culture or religion you belong to, a deity would travel the heavens in his chariot throne, inspecting his domain, exercising authority over it. And in Ezekiel's vision, the throne sits Upon the expanse, right? There's this word, the expanse, found in verse 26. It's the same word used in Genesis 1, verses 6 through 8, for the heavens, when God laid out the heavens. Here's this throne, this deity, this great throne chariot, and it sits and rides on the heavens, the expanse. In Psalm 150 and verse 1, the same word is used to describe God's dwelling place, God's abode. All right, think back to the vision again. Wheels supported this chariot throne. Along with, um, well, let's just say four unusual creatures. If you were to continue to read through the book of Ezekiel, by the time you get to chapter 10, Ezekiel um, describes them and gives them a name and he calls them cherubim. Each creature has four faces. Did you notice that? Pretty weird. Four faces. And in fact, it said that the four faces were on each side of its head. Most kids grow up thinking that mum has eyes in the back of her head. <laughs> I did. But how can mum know that? That's... That was even before we had security cameras in our houses. <laughs> Each of these creatures had four faces. One facing forward, left, right and back, it would seem. It describes one of the faces being human, one of the faces being like a lion, one being like an ox and one being like an eagle. Next to each of the cherub were these four gleaming wheels, right? And they seem a bit weird. These wheels would seem to be set on edge, standing tall. It says they were tall and awe-inspiring. But Ezekiel says that they were designed so they had wheels within wheels. So at least each one of these wheels had some type of concentric circle inside of it somehow. And the vision describes that the outer edge or the rim of these wheels as having eyes. Um, That's the way the English translators use that word. The prophet Daniel, reading through the, the book of Daniel, he was also a captive in Babylon. He describes something similar in one of his visions. So in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9, this is how Daniel describes it. He says, As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. Daniel saw something similar. So let's just think about it in the context of what 
Ezekiel saw and what the Babylonian exiles might have understood by it. It's interesting that the four faces of the four animals, or the the cherubim, as they're described later, correspond with symbols that the Babylonians used in the, in the Near East world were regular, regularly used um, as icons or as symbols of the Babylonian study of the stars, that their zodiac, okay? How they understood the stars to move and the quadrants of the sky and things like that. Each one of those symbols, human face, lion face, ox face and eagle face, each represented a seasonal constellation in Babylonian astrology. So at different seasons of the year, a dominant constellation was evident in the sky and there was a bull and there was an ox and there was an eagle and there was a human in different times and seasons of the year. Each face or constellation also represented one of the four directions on a map, north, south, east, and west. And the same symbols were used in ancient biblical uh, and near-biblical worlds. So you can go back into archaeology today and find Babylonian inscriptions on stone and tablet, and you will find these symbols to describe their maps, a bit like our little rose that we often put onto our maps today. So the various quadrants of the sky the northern sky, the southern sky, eastern sky and western sky were designated one of these symbols. The Babylonians knew that the heavens were connected to what happened on earth. So their times, their seasons, their crops, their weather were all connected to different times of the year. We do the same thing, right? When it comes to spring, we expect certain weather. When it comes to winter, we expect there to be more rain. We had plenty of it. The Babylonians also believed that their gods controlled these functions. So information about the stars were laid out on clay tablets that have been discovered even today. These clay tablets have concentric circles, circles within circles, to designate the movement of the stars, and maybe they correspond well to the wheels within wheels imagery that God gave to Ezekiel. Um, It's difficult for English translators to translate that Hebrew word that Ezekiel uses into English, which says that on the rim of the wheels were eyes. The same word is often used to describe stars. They'll say the same exact same word will say the sparkling nature of a star. That word that Ezekiel uses is the same word. Um, Possibly, what Ezekiel is seeing is an image, a vision of a constellation. Wheels within wheels and and stars and the symbols of the faces representing this sort of expanse of the heavens, maybe. What's the meaning, though? What could the meaning have been to these Babylonian exiles? 
It's quite possible, do you think, that if you had been in exile, if you had been stuck in Babylon, mourning the loss of your homeland, that during their time of exile, the Jewish captives might have easily believed that God had abandoned them forever. So easy to think back and look through rose-tinted glasses even on their history and say, I can remember when God was powerfully watching over us, when life was good, when we were in our land, where we could worship in the temple, when we could have our own crops, when we could have our own families. Maybe even the Babylonians themselves who had taken them into captivity could have simply assumed that their gods had defeated Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. But Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel's imagery sends a message to both of those people, both the exiles and the Babylonians. He says, both your assumptions are flawed. Both your conclusions have come to the wrong end. Yahweh has not been defeated. Nor has God turned away from his people, Israel. He remains seated in his chariot throne at the center of his domain, the entire cosmos, and he rules and watches over it all. See, an exile could have thought, when we were in Jerusalem, God was watching us. Now we're in Babylon. God's not watching over us. Look at our circumstances. Where's God now? Maybe it's too difficult for you to imagine yourself as an exile. So just think about your own circumstances for a moment. I'm sure that there's been a time in your life that you can reflect back on and easily say, yeah, God was watching over me then. God was really close then. But what about now? Or what about in these circumstances? Where's God now? Ezekiel if we read it through the ancient eyes of the exiles and the Babylonians, Ezekiel tells us that we can have hope today. Even amid incredibly difficult circumstances, we can know that an all-powerful God is active and present in our lives, whether we are in Jerusalem or whether we are in Babylon. It makes no difference. God rules and reigns in authority over it all. So how do we apply this? How do we apply it? Because the point of the Bible is not that you would simply have a better academic understanding of events and even theological truths. The point of the Bible is to know God, know yourself in light of who God is, and follow Jesus. That's the point of the Bible. That's why Jesus said in John 14 and 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Notice that he didn't say, if you love me, you will know my commands. He didn't even say, if you love me, you will memorize my commands. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I asked the question earlier, does God's closeness spin on the wheel of your own circumstances? And for the Israelites in captivity, it seemed it did. Even if God was watching, 
He was watching from a distance, right? Maybe you felt something similar in your life. Maybe you felt the circumstances of your life prove that God is removed and that God is distant from you. And here's what, God's want, here's, here's what God wants you to hear today. He wanted the Israelites to know it. And through this vision, he wants you to know it. God rules over it all. God rules over it all. Nothing escapes the notice and attention of God. Nothing. Nothing occurs in this entire planet without being seen. And Jesus himself reminds us of this profound detail. And there's this beautiful little story that he reminds his disciples of in Matthew chapter 10. And it's about a sparrow. Matthew chapter 10, reading from verse 29, says this. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? It's a rhetorical question. The disciples know the answer. Yes. A penny is not much. For one penny, you can buy two sparrows. Sparrows aren't worth much, is the point. Sparrows are worth very little, is the point. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny, Jesus says? Yet, not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. Harder job for some than others. Jesus' point of all of this? So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. See, not only does God simply notice the fall of the sparrow, Jesus says, Jesus says it can't fall unless the Creator gives it consent to do so. Such is the sovereign power of the God of this universe. And if this was not profound enough in its own right, Jesus then elevates our worth in the eyes of God by saying, so don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. If God cares about sparrows like that, take comfort, friends. God cares about you so deeply. What's Jesus saying here? Yes, God rules over it all. That's what Ezekiel was saying to his people in captivity as well. God rules over it all. Jesus is saying, yes, God rules over it all. And you are precious in the eyes of your Creator. You see, power is one thing, right? But to have a God who is powerful but doesn't love, that's terrifying. A God that can do anything, a God that rules from a throne of power, watching over it all. But if He doesn't care, if He doesn't love, he's not concerned, then that is called being a tyrant. If you have a God who has the power and authority to do anything he pleases, but if he doesn't care for you, let alone love you, 
Well, that just makes him a tyrant who continually needs to be sacrificed to, continually needs to be placated with acts of service in order to stay on his good side. Because he's powerful, but he doesn't care. So we need to try and make him care. Here's the good news. God's not like that. Right? God's not like that. God is powerful. Yes, he rules over it all. And you are precious in the eyes of your creator. So here's how I want to finish. God is watching. Definitely. Sorry, Bet. It's not from a distance. All right? Another prophet told us something that we must hold on to here. Precious truth to weave in with the reality of what we've been talking about. So Isaiah, an earlier prophet, he said this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive. Have a son and name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah called the promised one Emmanuel. What did Ezekiel call him? Ezekiel would tell the exiles who were wondering if God really cared that not only was God ruling in authority over all that was and all that would ever be, not only did God ride his victorious flaming throne in the skies, blazing splendor, watching over his people, whether they were in Jerusalem or in Babylon, Ezekiel told the exiles that there was a hope more precious than their freedom to cling to. So later in this same book, Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 21, and I'd love for you to turn to it. Same book, Ezekiel, but turn to chapter 37. Ezekiel 37 verse 21 says this. This is what the Lord God says. I'm going to take the Israelites out of the nations where they have been and where they've gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land. I'll make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king will rule over all of them. They will no longer be two nations and will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will not defile themselves anymore with their idols, their abhorrent things and all their transgressions. I will save them from all their apostasies by which they sinned and I will cleanse them. And then they will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them and there will be one shepherd for all of them. They will follow my ordinances and keep my statutes and obey them. They will live in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where where your ancestors lived. They will live in it forever with their children and grandchildren, and my servant David will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be a permanent covenant with them. I will establish and multiply them and will set my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And just as it was told by the mouth of Ezekiel, so it has been seen in Jesus.
The opening chapter of the Gospel of Matthew says this in verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. God is sovereignly powerful, yes. He rules the expanse of heaven. He traverses the cosmos. All that is between the furthest reaches of north, south, east and west are all held within his hand. God is watching, absolutely, but not from a distance, right? Not from a distance. God is also Emmanuel, God with us, intimately close, making his home among his people, conscious and caring for the suffering of his own people, his own children. He's willing to celebrate over you with loud singing. So this morning, if you are wondering if God knows or if God sees or if God cares, then the answer is yes. Yes, he does. Hold your confidence in him. This exile will not last forever. The God who rules, rules over it all. And he has made his home among his people. And God is watching, not from a distance, but he is watching right by your very side. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love towards us. Lord, thank you that you have drawn near to us. And Lord, sometimes in our suffering, we we can't see your hand. We can't see your goodness or your rule but lord give us the eyes of faith to see you ruling over it all a god who is powerful and present a god who sits enthroned in the heavens and yet makes his home amongst us A God who holds the entire universe, the entire cosmos together in the palm of the hand and yet cares about a sparrow and even cares more about us. Lord, give us eyes to see a vision of you as you truly are. A God who watches up close and personal. Amen.